Welcome to yet another episode of One Thing Led to Another. My guest for this episode is Julia Phillips, whose debut novel, Disappearing Earth, will be coming out May 14th, 2019. It's the story of two young girls in Russia who disappear. They're from the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is actually where Julia spent a great deal of time researching this novel. Uh, She talks about that experience, talks about what it's like to be a young and aspiring writer, and offers some great advice to anybody who is trying to hone the craft um some more personal news you'll notice that i removed the read aloud episodes from the podcast that was a decision in i just didn't think it those episodes fit with what one thing led to another has become uh this show is about the writers it's about the authors it's about story it's not about me I'm just sort of the one asking the right questions, I think, or sometimes the wrong questions, depend on who you ask. Um, but if you want to read those stories or listen to those stories, you can go out to my website at ntfinko.com. The stories were Rusted Plate and Winner Winner. Um, you can find those stories there. Uh, another announcement that I'm really excited about is I will be at the Lakefly Writers Conference uh, May 10th and 11th, so just before Julia Phillips' book comes out. Um, the Lakefly Writers Conference is in Oshkosh. I will have a booth, so if you're going there, um, you'll try to seek me out if you can. I'll be there promoting the podcast. I'll also be doing live episodes interviewing whomever wants to be interviewed at the conference, so it'll be pretty interesting. I'll get, I'm will get. i hoping to get guests of very various stages in their writing careers, so we'll hear from perhaps beginning to perhaps the very successful. We'll see. Um, but that's all there is for me. Uh, again, I want to thank Julia Phillips so much for agreeing to interview. Um, and yeah, check out her book, Disappearing Earth, May 14th, 2019. Can't say it enough. But this is Julia Phillips. Thanks again so much for listening. Um, So my name is Julia Phillips, and my debut novel is coming out in May, next month as we record this. It's called Disappearing Earth, and it's about the disappearance of two young sisters on a peninsula in the Russian Far East. So a peninsula called the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is on Russia's kind of northeastern shore. Wonderful. So could you sort of take me through the story of the story, so to speak? So kind of like first inception or first idea of the novel to ultimately publication. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The novel really started with my, I had studied Russian language and, and Russian culture in high school and college. And I wanted to find some way to combine creative writing and fiction writing with that place. I wanted to basically find a way to write while living in Russia. Um, So this book really started with the setting. I was looking for, back in 2009, looking to apply for a grant in creative writing that would take me to Russia to research a, a novel. And when I learned about Kamchatka, it's just like the most fascinating place in the world in my eyes um 
it's this volcanic peninsula. It's the size of California, but it has a really small population. It's the Bering Strait, and it was a totally closed territory during the Soviet Union, so no foreigners were allowed to go there. Um, and even Russian people needed kind of special government permission to enter the region. So it's it's this it's effectively an island of military and historical and cultural significance, not only in Russia, but in the world. And it's really, really beautiful, um, like stunningly beautiful. So I thought, I thought that's why I would like to set a book. And I applied for this grant for two years to go there in 2011. I got the grant and they funded me and gave me visa support to go for a year and live in Kamchatka and start researching what at that time I really didn't know, you know, start researching a book, basically start researching a book of fiction, but I didn't know what that would look like. I only knew it would be set there. And so I got there and I tried to learn as much about the region as I could and kind of hunt around for stories. And it turned out that a lot of the things that were so compelling to me as a setting basically made it this perfect place to put to place the stories I'm most compelled by, which are stories of, um, I would say violence and power dynamics and um, people in danger and also how those kind of interpersonal events affect an entire community and, and show a society's structures. Um, so I started writing that manuscript, the story of this disappearance and how it affects the other people in this Kamchatkan community in 2014. Um, I went back to Kamchatka in 2015 and then came back again. It was drafting, drafting, drafting. In 2017, um, I finished... I got to a place where I thought, okay, this is ready to query agents with. So I started querying agents at, or I queried my agent at the end of January in 2017. Um, and then it, things all of a sudden moved really quickly. So this, this long project really accelerated. Um, she was the only person I queried. It was like this extraordinary life-changing event. And hmm she took me on and she sold the book really quickly the book she sold the book by the beginning of march and then that super fast pace slowed down again and and i worked with my editor for about a little over a year on edits to the book um and we finished edits in june 2018 you know that is edits with my editor one-on-one and before moving on to copy edits and kind of proofreading. Um, and everything since then has been kind of waiting for the book to come out. So by the time the book comes out in May, 2019, it'll have been 10 years from kind of inception to inception, conception <laughs> to now to publication. That is quite a journey. <laughs> it took a lot of um, frequent flyer miles, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so where did the idea come from to have it be about the two girls, the two sisters? I think that that is a kind of story I'm particularly interested in. 
Um, so as a woman in the world, I think a lot of my, uh, I think I'm very drawn to, and I'm all, always like a very eager audience member to stories where, especially that kind of express, um, threat to women, especially threat to women and girls as, as a way to kind of express through narrative or work through this constant feeling of, of danger and fear that comes from living in the world in this body. So, so I, you know, I'm a big fan of Honor SVU. I'm a big fan of like Alice Boland's Dead Girls essay collection that came out last year. I think I'm a big fan of, um, fairy tales <laughs> like I, I really like I think it's it's a it's a recurrent theme this theme of girls in danger and it's one that really resonates inside me as a as a reader and as a human in the world um when I went to Kamchatka in my first month there I saw some missing person posters for young girls and I also had a couple experiences in which I you know I was like I was a foreigner. I'm not a citizen. I was really a Russian citizen. I was really young. I didn't have a lot of um, control or power in that space. And there were a couple situations huh. where I was like, this could be it for me. <laughs> you know, this could be like wow. uh, a, just a moment where I, it's, it's very clear that I'm in over my head. Um, and if the other person decides to hurt me, this is, this is basically a prime opportunity to for them to do so. Um, and so I think that kind of literary and creative interest and that larger context and that pervasive feeling of unease all kind of came together to drive this storyline. So then I suppose the first question I should have asked is that you mentioned that you were taking Russian language classes in high school. And I have to ask, where did this interest in Russia come from, especially <laughs> from such a young age? Okay, so it's a very, very embarrassing story, which is that I had a crush on a Russian-American camp counselor when I was 12 years old. And like really after that summer, I had no more connection to that person, totally was like a fleeting influence. And yet I think there's a certain age or a certain moment in our lives where we're really um, open and eager for influence. And I definitely was at that moment. So, you know, like the music I started listening to then was kind of the seed of the music I listened to later or the culture I was so excited about then was the seed of, you know, these, these kind of seeds were planted that later became these enormous things. And Russia in that summer began to seem really interesting and really fun and really alluring. And then all of a sudden it wasn't like just about one person. It was about, you know, the literature is incredible. The language is so fascinating. The history is extraordinary, especially growing up as a, an eighties baby coming out of the cold war and understanding that the Soviet union is now a country that, we can never go to and that is gone and yet has this resonant impact through the Russian Federation and through the world. Um, it just got more and more exciting all the time. So 
So I don't have Russian heritage. It's not kind of, it really is just like a passing influence that got out of control. (laughs) So what it sounds like to me is the reason you sort of fell in love in Russia with Russia is the same reason I fell in love with early 2000s pop punk music because I had a crush on a girl who liked that sort of music and I never listened to it before and wanted to seem cool yeah oh yeah 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 you're you're speaking exactly to the reason I went to a Slipknot concert in eighth grade that (laughs) I'd be like this is how we learn about the world we (laughs) go to a hundred really quickly in terms of concerts (laughs) you know but you you just you meet some person and all of a sudden you're like, I guess I'm going to start learning a lot about this thing that I didn't Actually, even know. <laughs> come to think of it, in eighth grade, I went to a Rise Against concert there for my first go. ever. <laughs> that makes me so happy. And it was, at a festival. it was at a festival too. So there's, you know, just the best kind of people surrounding you there. <laughs> this really makes me feel not alone. This is, this is wonderful. <laughs> Very good. So I have to ask then, um, when you were over in Russia, like I'm assuming you had a lot of conversations with a lot of people there. What was sort of their reception to you as you were researching for this novel? Um, I would say their reception was really warm and positive and supportive and extraordinary. There were a few different reasons for that. I went to a particular place at a particular time in our cross-cultural relationship with Russia, that is America's relationship with Russia. And um, at a particular time of my life where I'm sure, you know, if I went to Moscow right now, or even if I went to Kamchatka right now, it would be different. But in 2011, when I first went, um, there was a lot of optimism in the relationship between America and Russia. So I think people were excited. I'm not excited, but like generally feeling positive. Um, Russia is, has an extraordinary literary culture um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of, I would say like respect and reverence for the arts and for writing. And the fact that I was arriving with a government grant that was funding a book project made it all seem very legitimate. I think, you know, I was showing up there saying, I'm a writer, I'm writing this book, which definitely, you know, coming from, from the US and from New York, it's, I don't, I don't think in my, in the context I was in, that was not taken as seriously as, as it was when I arrived in Kamchatka, that was taken very seriously. And I also, oh, Kamchatka itself is really hard to get to. So, you know, there are a lot of Americans, a lot of expats, a lot of foreigners going through Moscow or going through St. Petersburg. But Kamchatka um, is, you know, 16 time zones away from New York. You fly basically to Moscow 11 hours and then another nine hours to Kamchatka. It's, It's really, really challenging to reach and because of that um folks there 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 weren't many people who were living full-time there saying you know i'm here as a foreigner to do this thing like i would say i could count on two hands the number of people who 
I knew doing that on the peninsula. And because of that, there was more kind of um, hospitality extended and, and people, it, it felt more unusual and more exciting to folks. So it was a really, really positive experience. And certainly when I went back in 2015, although the American Russian relationship was already pretty different, um, I was stepping back into those existing relationships and people continued to be extraordinarily um, generous with their time and their experiences and their conversation. It, it was a real gift. Very, very cool. So in your book, you have four characters, correct? Four perspectives, I should say. So I actually, I have, um, I would say 12 characters. 12? Yeah. Wow. So, so each, um, the way it's structured is that we have the disappearance of these girls in August, and then we move through a year in Kamchatka, and every chapter that, you know, moves, each chapter is a month. Um, so the first chapter, they go missing in August. The second chapter, we jump forward to September. And the third chapter is October, et cetera. And each chapter is a different point of view, a different kind of main character, focus character. All right. So that even adds to my question of when it comes to these characters, and I often hear this from writers, is one of the struggles is to do your best to avoid making the character just simply like an aid to the plot or have their existence be there to move the plot along with so many characters. How do you make them feel genuine and make them profound if, if, if profound is the right word? I like that word. I hope I did make them feel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I had an interesting structure that I think helped with that because part of the design of the book is that it moves through a whole community and that people have kind of differing each chapter is not you know someone who says my primary goal in January after these girls go missing is to assist with the search for these girls like they have their own concerns and their own lives and their own kind of driving reasons for being and that was a challenge to maintain momentum in the overall plot but it was really easy to create it made it really easy to create their individual characters because they were all like performing very different actions in very different contexts in very different ways and and that was by design that the book would show um, a range of violence in these women's lives and also a a range of experiences and that would basically be um, the story of how this crime impacts a a community and not just how it impacts an individual. So that recentering was a really helpful way to um, really keep the focus on each character and expand and deepen them in ways that varied from other ones like in that chapter that character is we're only in that character's world and and the worlds are not the same it's like it was a really really helpful thing to switch i i'm thinking about how you kind of build and differentiate the character i'm very into this book (laughs) evangelize (laughs) about this book called um anatomy of story by john truby and it's amazing 
I have a copy of it sitting on my desk. Oh my God. Okay. All right. Good. So we're both in the, in the Truby cult. Yes. Um, So, you know, he talked, so he talks right about character development being, um, they have these fundamental weaknesses in the beginning, and then they have this basic action that drives them toward a change. And the change that they undergo is like, oh, basically 180 degree change. They, in some way, their weaknesses have to be addressed or resolved or, um, their weaknesses are what is in play and the action is, is hinged on and fueled out of those weaknesses. Um, and I think that is a really helpful way to consider what makes each individual, each individual's life and story among these characters different because each of them is doing a different thing. Like they have different, um, like in September, we look at a classmate of the girls who basically gets in an argument with her friend. And in October, we're looking at this customs officer who is really struggling in this new relationship with her boyfriend, who is a member of the girls' search party. And in November, there's an administrator at the girls' school, and she goes through a medical, basically, crisis. And so they have these different fundamental actions in each chapter what their concern is like what their basic drive is in terms of story momentum each one is different and it brings out different weaknesses and it exposes a different change in each of them it provokes a different change and I think kind of sitting with that those fundamentals really I hope helped me drill into how, who are these individual people, what is going on in their lives and how does that pull back into the story, the the larger story of weakness and change and action that I'm trying to tell. Um, Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) <laughs> so outside of disappearing earth i mean you have plenty of writing out there that's been published but it is is this sort of the same kind of writing that you do or have you been have you kind of like explored a little and done different genres and different structures i have written essays i've written some articles like um tried to do more journalistic work I um structure wise this was a very unusual structure for me so that I don't anticipate repeating this structure I I feel like if I did (laughs) it's it's so distinctive that that it would be I think a really tough one um to go back to but I I feel like everything I write and everything I try to do comes out of the same obsessions and same drives even if they feel disparate or even if one is set you know in this peninsula in Russia and the other one is about I don't know growing up in my New Jersey high school um I'm really interested in in gender and violence and power and community, especially community in isolation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think those are things that I 
come back to over and over in whatever the genre form is and things that I'll continue coming back over and over to because they are so compelling to me. So I know that your book isn't even out yet. So I'm going to hesitate to ask the question of like, what's next for you? Because I mean, <laughs> it's been a 10 year journey, let's give you a little bit of time, but is, is the idea of like going to a place and immersing yourself in that place and then telling a story about that place. Is that something you see yourself doing again in the future? I, it's something that I see as the way that I write. Um, but I think it'll express itself in a different way for the next project. So I'm already trying to work on, I already am working on the next project. I don't know if this is going to be a first pancake or, you know, <laughs> a kind of experiment around the excitement and stress and change of publication, or if this is going to be what the next book is, but I'm, I'm hopeful about it and excited about it. And I can, and that one is not, you know, that one's set in the U S and in the region that I live. Um, and yet I see that something that really helps me in working on it is immersion, especially immersion into new contexts. So, um, and like, what does that immersion look like? Like I, for example, um, switched jobs a couple years ago when I saw that this was, the second project was gonna be something that was exciting to me. and and. I wanted to know a bit more about. I started working at an organization that had a lot of kind of overlap with the content of the book um, in order to learn more about that. Or I'm trying to, you know, like taking on different volunteering roles or reading different books. You know, I think a lot of this immersion, other people would just call what I call or think of as immersion is just like research, um, but kind of whole bodied research where how you're spending your day is fully dedicated to learning new things about about what you want to write about and trying to notice every detail you can. I think it's been a real challenge to try to do that in this city where I've been living for, gosh, 13 years. Um, but it's been exciting to see how helpful it is if I, if I can get into even a slightly different context than how much more I notice and... Um, how much more alive I am to, I think, the details that kind of ground ground the fiction I want to write. So when you were writing Disappearing Earth, is there an instance where someone you met in Russia was so influential that they almost have their own character in the novel? Or were the characters sort of like they pulled almost character traits from people that you met? That's a really good question. Um, I think that all of these characters are kind of like patchwork quilts of moments and details and stories and feelings, certainly from people I met there and also from people I know here and also from, you know, myself or my family members or, or like there are all these kind of hodgepodges so I can definitely looking at these characters say oh I know I, I pulled that detail from this moment or I you know took this feeling this person's describing or this this anecdote is 
is pulled from or inspired by something that this person said to me. Um, I can give you an example. I, there's a, in the fifth chapter, someone's in a, I would say a pretty, pretty toxic relationship. And she talks about um, how her boyfriend, they're in, she's in a long distance relationship and her boyfriend will say, are you home? And she says, yes. And he doesn't believe her until she sets the microwave to go off. Hmm. Um, so she like sets the microwave for 30 seconds. It goes off. And then he says, oh, okay, I believe you. I believe you. And that's how they, that's kind of their routine. And I remember someone telling me that, I remember where I was when someone told me that in Kamchatka and it was like a totally off, you know, kind of casual story. And she was with her boyfriend. They were talking, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm in school here and he doesn't believe that I'm at home or I'm in the dorm. So I always use the microwave to, and, and that's like a total tiny aside that could certainly come up anytime in the U S or, you know what I mean? Like that could just, it's just a conversational nothing in some ways. It's the, it's the tiniest of details, but something like that, um, is definitely pulled from, from conversation I had on Kamchatka. So it's not like any character is a particular person, but like they're all kind of cobbled together. That's such an interesting dynamic. I mean, you mentioned the, your interest in gender and, and the power dynamics with the, with the microwave. That's such an interesting one <laughs> to bring yeah. up. It really struck me. And, and, and it was really rich and specific. You know, it's like so little, but it says so much. Um, and, and the way she talked about it was so small and said so much. I don't know. I, I I agree. I I thought it was a really interesting dynamic. So then as you were writing the book and going through the editing process, what would you say you struggled with most when it came to writing? I, I came to writing. Going through the editing process, the thing I struggled with most was maintaining cohesion and momentum. Um, Because the book jumps narrators you know not narrators but kind of pov characters every chapter it's was really easy to um have the thrust of the story kind of flag and to just not to lose immersion and then have no reason to kind of plug back in um at the end of every single chapter was an opportunity to put the book down and stop reading and there had to be a real kind of thrust moving forward to pick the book back up at the beginning of a new chapter. And that was really, really, really hard to edit toward. That was no doubt about it, like a long challenge that I'll be interested now in how it hits readers because I don't know, because that, that was my biggest concern in the editing. Are you ready for the difficult question now? <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> what are you what are you best at when it comes to writing? I think I'm good at writing physical body detail. Um I think I'm like I think I'm really interested in, in, 
bodies, how emotions feel in the body, how experiences feel in the body, kind of like sitting inside the body and, and how it feels to be in a particular situation or sitting in a particular room or listening to someone talk or eating, or I think I'm good at that. Or at least I think that's what I like the most. Those are the moments that are the most exciting to me and feel like they flow the easiest. So those are the moments I like to, to kind of, um, cling to like little life preservers. Um, I really, that's, I really enjoy that. And then for my final question for you today, Julia, I ask this of every guest that I have on the show, since this podcast is all about storytelling and trying to figure out what makes a good story. The question I have is what do you think, what can you say to my listeners that like points them in the direction of, what makes a good story? Like, how do you, how does one go about telling a good story, whether that's writing or just at the dinner table? Like what's one piece of advice you could give to t help people tell a better story? I think, I mean, this goes back, I think, to the challenge I had in editing this book. Um, I think what makes a good story is a feeling of flow and momentum. And that's true on the page. And it's true at stories that you're telling at a dinner party uh, around the table um, there's this, a good story hits all the beats. A good story like feels both inevitable and surprising. It just, there's never like a moment of flagging interest. There's not a moment of, oh, I could put this down and do something else or walk away. It starts and it contains within it enough momentum and excitement to kind of force you through to the end. Um, to me, that is a good story. I love a good story. I have found, thankfully, that story is well um, analyzed. <laughs> that story is very, that, that to create a strong story structure, to create the skeleton of a good story, it you can really dig into that. It's very resilient and it's, it's kind of like, it's tough meat that you can really chew on for a long time and play with and edit and move around and redraft. And it, it's not, I find like um, stylistic excellence, beautiful writing on the page to, to be um, really challenging to know like how you capture that lightning in a bottle but story structure, man, story structure, you can just like read lots of books about and really just dig into and learn about and push, you know, manipulate the text that you have to fit the structure that is the most full of momentum. Um, so I would say, don't give up on that. Just, just keep pushing yourself toward the structure that works in the same way that, you know, a stand-up comedian mm -hmm. works the beats of their routine to just get every bit of it just right. Well, I want to thank you so very much for joining me, Julia. It was a great conversation. And I will absolutely be picking up your book when it releases on what date? On May 14th. And I'm going to cross my fingers that you enjoy it. Mm -hmm.